Hello and welcome to the Smart Cities World podcast with me, your host, Luke Antonio, Senior Editor here at Smart Cities World. We have a really special episode for you here in conversation with Monica Baroni, CEO of the City of Sydney, to delve into the city's incredible environmental strategy, which has been in place now for around 15 years. Monica, great to have you with us for this episode. Before we get to the crux of the matter, let's just get a quick introduction from you for anyone not familiar about yourself and about your role in Sydney. Terrific. My name is Monica Baroni and I'm the CEO at the City of Sydney. And the City of Sydney is the local government that looks after the sort of uh, CBD and inner city part of uh, metropolitan Sydney. So we don't look after the whole of metropolitan Sydney, but we work very closely with all of the other local governments across Sydney. So I'm the CEO and I've been the CEO since 2006 and I serve a Lord Mayor whose name is um, Lord Mayor Clovermore and Clovermore's actually been the Lord Mayor since 2004. So it's a very long-standing um, administration that, uh, that the Lord Mayor has overseen and that I've had the great honour and um, privilege to work for. Yeah, it's fantastic. That's one of the things that I want to come on to talk about later on is that kind of political stability that, that the city's had. In, uh, in all those years, which is really quite unheard of. Um, but to, to start off with, just to, just to frame things for, for our listeners, we're, we're coming together today to talk about the city's environmental strategy and the role of climate action and the strategy in, in taking that really crucial action at this point uh, after a few years where you know extreme weather and some really incredible events around the globe have really brought to the fore the need for that action very, very urgently. Um, so to begin with, um, I want to ask about the city's environmental strategy, which, first off, it would be great just to understand what your targets are and what the progress has been like to date since the strategy launched. So, Luke, I'm going to take us right back to the beginning because actually the environmental program of the City of Sydney is, is actually the central um, kind of it's the central most defining of all of the strategies that determine what we do. So after the Lord Mayor was elected, we embarked on, and I was appointed, we embarked on what was probably the most comprehensive consultation that the City of Sydney had taken for probably forever, um, but definitely for a very long time since the 1970s when the, the previous city plan had been developed. And we engaged very broadly with our residents our citizens and with people right across metropolitan Sydney because of whatever happens in the city of Sydney and the CBD of Sydney impacts on everyone. And we embarked on like 18 months of consultation to determine what it was that people wanted us to do and the vision they wanted for the city. And the, the number one issue that people identified was that we took action on climate. And this was in 2006, 2007. So that shaped the entire administration uh, the programming, the planning, and the budget of the city since then. So we developed an, a, a document called Sustainable Sydney 2030. And that document has a, a byline, which is that to, is to deliver a city that is green, global, and connected. Um, and putting green first indicated and, and said back to our citizens that we have heard you that the environment is your number one issue. I have to also say that... Thankfully, um, it is also the number one issue in the Lord Mayor's mind and has also been in my mind. Um, you know, this is something that means a great deal to the Lord Mayor, means a great deal to me and has throughout 
both of our careers. So, so we were pleased that our citizens, um, you know, were in accord with that. So we developed Sustainable Sydney 2030. There's a lot in that plan, and of course, it evolves each year. It is updated and evolves. And then sitting under Sustainable Sydney 2030, the overarching document, which sets the overarching targets, are all of the doc, the strategy, the, well, the targets, the policies and the strategies that then deliver against those high-level targets. And that is, you know, that is multidimensional, as you can imagine, because there are many, many things that go into a high-performing city and one that is, um, you know, takes account of the impacts of climate change. But I'll just say before I talk a little bit about the actual environment strategy, that really what that strategy does, what Sustainable Sydney 2030 does, is it, out, it outlines to our citizens how we go from values through that spectrum from values to accountability. So it's very values driven. Essentially, when we speak to our community, we're saying to you, what do you value? And they say, well, we value the sunshine in the city and we value the shade. And we value being able to have access to fresh water and fresh food, right? We, these are the things we value. So we, we take those values and we embed them in the way we plan for the city. And they're reflected in things like planning controls and everything, which I can speak to you about in a moment. But, the, but it goes right through to accountability, right? Because not only do we embed those values in everything that we do, we then demonstrate how we're going to deliver to maintain, to achieve what it is that people value, you know, to either maintain or enhance what they value and how we're going to report against that. So that is really, really critical um, to, you know, what we've done. So we created this overarching document, but then we had to take, we, you know, and in that overarching document we set the, the key target, obviously, the key emissions reduction target, the water target and the waste target. They're the three main areas that we needed to perform in in order to develop a sustainable Sydney and to deal with, you know, with climate change. But, of course, there's so many things that sit under that. So we have, you know, in the emissions area, there's, you know, everything from the, you know, the electricity we buy to the way we um, support the building of green buildings, to the way we support domestic scale um, or the precinct scale energy provision in the water space. It's the water that we use. It's the way we build recycled water into new development. Uh, it's all, you know, it's, it's multifaceted, right? In the waste space, there's got to be a plan for every single waste stream. What do we do with glass? What do we do with plastic? What do we do with paper? So there are many strategies that sit underneath that. And then there's a long-term financial plan that assigns a budget to each of those projects, uh, programs and projects, and then, of course, we report against it. So we've taken it from an aspirational target through to fully integrated suite of policies, strategies, programs and budgets with you know people who are accountable for delivering against those things yeah absolutely I, I think when you you know understanding that and seeing how far each of those individual arms kind of stretch only then do you really get the uh the kind of full force and full impact of how far reaching uh a city like sydney's environmental strategy really is because it is 
I mean, it's vast. It's absolutely vast. Yeah, it, it is. And, um, and I think, you know, what I'll say about that is that when you're dealing with, um, you know, dealing with things like emissions reduction or water, you, I mean, we know that the vast majority of emissions are generated as a consequence of cities. They're not generated by the city, but they're, they're generated as a consequence of the amount of um, electricity and power that is used by a city. You know, water issues are generated as a consequence of the amount of water that is being used or the, or, and waste, the amount of waste that's being created, right? So in order to deal with that, you have to actually understand those issues in place. So you have to absolutely understand where they're being used, where that power is being used or that water is being used or where that waste is being generated. And each, each, thing, that, each thing needs its own action plan. So I'll give you an example. And, 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 of course, this all comes back to having really excellent data. And, of course, lots of cities don't have excellent data. We have excellent data and continue to improve that. So, for example, we set our emissions reduction target. So we said we need to reduce our emissions um, by 70% based on 2006 because we started the plan in 2006, so that was our baseline, right? So we measured what our emissions profile was in 2006. We then forecast what business as usual would look like, and then we worked out how much we needed to reduce in order to achieve the emissions reductions that the scientists said we needed to achieve. Then we said, okay, well, that's, the, that's what we have to achieve, but where are those emissions being generated? So then we did that research, and, and that was fascinating because what we then looked at, we, we came to understand was that the vast majority of those emissions in our local government were coming from commercial buildings. In another local government, it might have been transport because people were using cars a lot. But in our local government area, you know, like most of the, most transport is public um, public transport usage, right? The vast majority was coming from commercial buildings. So then we said, okay, how do we tackle emissions from commercial buildings? And then we interrogated that more deeply. And then what we discovered was that over 50% of all the commercial stock in our city belonged to 14 institutional owners. And then we thought we can sit around the table with 14 owners, can't we? Can't sit around the table with hundreds and hundreds. You can't get anything done. But if we can sit around the table with 14 and if they can work with us to reduce emissions and they're the leaders, then they're going to influence the rest of the sector, right? And, of course, they're the institutional owners in every CBD in Australia and in many of the CBDs around the world. So it took a year for that group to agree to work together because, of course, they're all competitors and we set up the Better Building Partnership. And those people are close to having reduced their emissions to achieve the targets in our plan. But you need the data to do that. And what we often see and is disappointing to see in local governments around Australia and around the world is that people are making decisions not based on the data. Well, they're making decisions not based on the science. That's bad enough. But when they actually accept the science, they're then making decisions not based on the data. The politicians are sometimes going off in you know, various directions because it suits them or because lobby groups have persuaded them and they're not really getting the best bang for their buck. We've been very fortunate to have leadership that is very committed to evidence-based policy and decision-making. And so we're able to focus our effort where we're going to get the best bang for our buck.
Of course, the other thing that goes with that, Luke, is that then you are engaging citizens in co-solving, co-designing the solutions and co-solving the problems. And it creates for a very, you know, healthy, um, you know, creates for a very healthy city community and very good governance. That data, like you say, is really the the root from where action kind of kind of grows. It's like I understand, I understand, you know, the kind of social movements that encourage people to do certain things. You know, let's all ban plastic straws or let's all do that. But but politicians and communities can put a lot of effort into things that don't actually change things substantially. And we've we're in a crisis, right? We need action. You know, we're in a climate emergency and that means urgent action and that means we have to take the limited resources we have and get the absolute best bang for our buck. And it's sometimes not what people think, you know. The, the, you know, as I, when I first started this work, you know, I'd say to staff and say to communities, you know, being green doesn't necessarily look green, you know. Yes, it's important to increase canopy cover and, yes, it's going to help. But do not think that just because we increase canopy cover that you can survive if you have day after day of 45-degree temperatures, right? Even sitting under a tree is not going to save your life in those circumstances. You have to have the tree because it's going to help, but it's not going to be enough. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I can only imagine that that message will resound with a lot of our listeners uh, who are in in similar positions to, to yourself. Um one of the things I wanted to ask about the environmental strategy itself is the way that it's it's been updated through the years, obviously going all the way back to 2006, 2007, up to the current day and keeping that 2030 target in, in mind. You know, how important has it been to update that strategy incrementally through those years? And how has that helped to, I suppose, almost focus the mind and reprioritize certain targets and objectives over that period of time? Well, a lot has changed since 2006. I mean, you know, even the urgency with which we need to act has been has changed since 2006, right? But so has the technology, right? And so our knowledge has changed. The science has continued to be updated and the technology has continued to be updated. So when we first started in 2006, my direction to the consultants who helped us to deliver our, to develop our original um, infrastructure master plans, and I need to see, we've got master plans for, you know, renewable electricity, um, recycled water, waste, all of those things, because we needed to know way ahead of time what sort of infrastructure needed to be embedded in the future? Because, of course, the only opportunity we have to embed new infrastructure is when sites are being redeveloped, right? So we needed to know just, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to your question, but we needed to know really early on how much stormwater are we going to have as the climate patterns change and we get more rain and therefore how big do the pipes need to be because they're going to need to be bigger than the standard pipes that we were currently putting in. Now, you need to forecast that in order to put that bigger pipe in every time a site is renewed, right, or to plant you know, wider verges that can absorb more water, all of those sorts of things. You needed to have the forecasts because our infrastructure planning, you know, is – takes you know it happens over many many decades right and so that's how we relate the you know environmental work to our work as a city that plans for the built environment right 
So anyway, but back to what your, your question. So when we went to the consultants who did those original plans, I mean, the direction was this. You need to give us a plan that's affordable and, 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 and with, with, that is designed within, which, within the existing technology. Right? Don't tell me, oh, you know, if when, one day when they invent this, this silver bullet, you'll be able to do this because they haven't invented the silver bullet. Tell me what is possible today within, a, you know, the budget we have and the technology that exists because we have to start today, right? We can't start in 20 years' time. Now, so the plans have to be continuously updated as things change. When we first started, everyone was talking about transitioning from coal through gas to renewable, right? Because gas was going to be the, the, the energy source that was going to back up renewable as we made the transition. And, of course, gas was still cleaner than coal. And remember, Australia is a country that's very coal dependent, right? So gas was cleaner and then the move would be to, to renewable. Now, unfortunately, you know, we were begging our federal governments and our state governments to write an energy plan that showed the transition through gas to renewable, showed the timeline so that we could all do the business cases on our gas um, infrastructure, know how long that had to last until we would get the supply of renewable. But they didn't. They really failed us on that. So we as a city, we made some of those decisions ourselves to install some gas infrastructure to take us off the coal until we could get to the renewable infrastructure. But of course now it's too late. We cannot afford any more gas, right? So unfortunately Australia's um, provision of renewable electricity is increasing and so we can now get much better supply than we could when we started, there wasn't the supply. So we needed to go to something cleaner because we couldn't go to the cleanest because we couldn't get it, right? Now, they are complicated things for communities to understand. And sometimes they're complicated things, for, you know, they're definitely things that advocates sometimes don't want to understand. They don't want to understand necessarily the business case or the realities of those things. And that's why writing the plans regularly and explaining, you know, reviewing them and explaining the change is really, really important because it's really important for leaders to explain it, but it's also really important for leaders to be honest. You know, don't go telling people that you can do this and this and that when you can't or you can afford this and this and that when you can't. You know, do the hard work and work it out. So that's really important. And, of course, targets changed. Now, we've exceeded most of our targets. Of course, when we first adopted the targets, we were extremely anxious. Would we get there? How would we explain if we didn't? But we need to explain when we do, but we also need to explain when we don't. So all of having the, those complete plans is part of the narrative, it's part of the education, and it's part of the accountability, being honest with people, being honest when you succeed, but being honest when you fail. Yeah, for sure. And that actually brings me very neatly onto onto the next thing that I wanted to cover off. So thank you for that. Um, which is is the reporting and the way that the city communicates with communities and with citizens on progress or you know around these targets and around these actions. Your biannual 
green reports, for example, you know, how important have they been in, in communicating that, that progress? I suppose not only with citizens, but also keeping the rest of the city council involved and engaged in in this plan, in this strategy. I imagine there are representatives for, for the plan across every department in, in the council. That's right. And look, one of the things that I've said to our staff from, from the beginning is that, you know, every job is a green job. I don't know if you recall, you know, maybe 10 or more than that, sort of 20 years ago, people were saying, oh, you know, there's, you know, there's going to be all these new jobs for people, um, you know, who, are, who understand the environment and know how to work in the environment. It's all these new green jobs. And let's face it, every job is a green job. You can't, you can't seriously call yourself an executive of any standing unless you understand climate action and you understand the business related issues to do with climate and so that's so everybody's got to learn i mean you know whether if you run a childcare center we still want you to you know, to interrogate the nappies that you're buying for the children or the food um we want you you know you're responsible for the energy in your childcare center and that you're using it efficiently and that you're reporting if there are issues and you know so every job everybody has to understand environmental action so when we started um look i was really i i really insisted on the green report for a number of reasons the first thing was that when we first started i mean we were we were quite early early sort of um adopters here you know we we started quite early and and so what i was concerned about was that we were very very accountable um, and that we were very, very honest about what we were doing and that we had, you know, excellent uh, reporting and excellent sort of accountability around the money that we, you know, that we were spending ratepayers' money on this. I was also extremely concerned that people would start, when, one, people would start to make allegations of greenwash um, or that, you know, we hadn't, you know, that we needed to, to absolutely provide the evidence that what we were doing was true and, you know, so that we could not be um, accused of not actually delivering what we were delivering. And that can easily happen if you cannot quickly get your hands on the evidence and say, no, yes, we've increased canopy cover and here's the map and here's the asset, here's the asset um, uh, database and there's every tree and every tree's got a number. So you can't say that we didn't do that, right? So because... You know, as I would say to the Lord Mayor, you know, no one goes out on election day and says, gee, emissions are down today, right? Because you can't see this, nor can you see, you know, I mean, you can see when the dam levels go down. But, you know, these are hard things for people to understand and to see. And so, you know, people can be slippery with these things. So I wanted to be sure that we were not that. I also wanted to be sure that our staff, are, you know, were, absolutely um, applied absolute rigour to all of the um, record keeping and um, measuring of the things that we were doing. Um, you know, for example, you know, we, like everyone, still have to buy a certain amount of offsets. And, of course, when we started, the offset market was, you know, was very immature, you know. So we needed to, you know, go to a lot of trouble to find the right offsets and put those certificates up on our website so people could interrogate them and explain why we chose this over that. Because we were also, we not only did we want to hold ourselves accountable, we also wanted to educate people. You know, here's a range of offsets. We've, on, we've made, used our best 
available, you know, information to choose this over this, you know. But that can change. As you know, suddenly something can be discredited and you have to quickly say, we used to buy this offset, but we've decided it's not as good as it ought to be and now we are buying this offset. We couldn't get offsets in Australia in the beginning, but now we can. And now there's an Indigenous carbon market right, with Indigenous communities developing, you know, offset products, and that's fantastic. And, yes, they cost more, but we're putting money back into our own country and into our Indigenous communities. And so when you make those decisions, you have to explain why. And, of course, that aligns with our Reconciliation Action Plan, which is our plan to support our Indigenous community. But we have to explain all of those things. So the Green Report enables us to hold ourselves accountable and enables the community to go into our report or into our website and see it for themselves. There's the certificate. There's the organisation we're partnering with. There's the annual report of the Better Buildings Partnership. There's the data dictionary that explains how, you know, what data we are, what the data sources are that, that are, you know, uh, then, that, that then lead to that claim, right? Here's the people that audit that data, right? All of that is so important. We're spending other people's money here, right? And they've, they've asked us, they've given us their trust. We want you to, to act on climate and we want you and, and we're trusting you. So we, we have to do that. The other thing, of course, is it helps, it really helps the staff to, you know, me to keep our staff accountable because I read that report cover to cover. Yeah, I can imagine. What does that do. mean? What does that mean? Are you sure that doesn't look right? That graph doesn't look right. What are you telling me here? Go back, right? And so it keeps us all honest. Yeah, for sure. And that accountability and that transparency is uh, more important than ever. I think in in a world that is, I think, becoming increasingly sort of black and white. <laughs> there is no more grey. That's uh, right. <laughs> And can I say, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, there are a lot of people who are very slippery out there and there are a lot mm. of politicians who are very slippery out there, right, who, you know, will use climate action as a way to, you know, to undermine their opponents, right, and so and, and don't want to get their heads around the complexity of this or do the work of taking the community on the complexity around this. So, for example, right, in the city of Sydney, 75% of people live in apartments. So people cannot, there's not enough roof space for solar panels on an apartment block to serve a whole block of flats, right? So people, you know, but in other parts of Sydney, domestic solar panels is the right thing to advocate and the right thing to incentivise. Now, politicians, elected representatives, have a duty to explain that to their different communities. You know, I know you would like us to give you a solar panel rebate, whatever, you know, grant or whatever, but we've done the work and that's not going to be best bang for our buck. I know your neighbour in another area where everybody lives in a single, you know, dwelling um, gets that, but that's not the right thing for you. I mean, one of my classics is, you know, some of the councillors who carry on about, you know, we've put solar panels on all of the available roofs that we have where it's viable, right? Some roofs, it is not viable to put a solar panel on. I live in a house surrounded 
buy big shade trees. They're absolutely gorgeous, but there's no point putting a solar panel on my house. So I buy green power instead, right? There are, you know, there are some roofs that you cannot put a solar panel on. But you will still see politicians during elections say things like, oh, the city has failed to put you know, solar panels on all its roofs. Well, there are some roofs I can't put solar panels on. We've got one swimming pool that's curved glass roof. No, we can't put solar panels on there and stop telling the community we can, right? Be a leader. And that's why the Green Report is so important, because it's what I can document and put up onto our website, irrespective of some of those things that are said and done. Well, we said we'd come on to this, but one of the things I was wondering right at the top of this is whether you think that that kind of stable political status in the city, with the Lord Mayor going into her 18th year, um, it's pretty pretty incredible. Does that stability help in making making progress with that, with this strategy? And I suppose keeping the community and citizens on board with the work that you're doing there as well. Yeah, so look, it's it's helped enormously to have a Lord Mayor who is absolutely committed to this and who has been able to, 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 to last for that long, to stay in power for that long. But I will just say something about the Lord Mayor. Yes, the Lord Mayor's been the Lord Mayor for that period of time, but for most of that time, because she was also the local member in the state parliament for much of that time, she's gone to election every two years, right? So... It's not like the Lord Mayor is not being held accountable. I wouldn't want anyone to think that there's not a political contest and that there isn't the opportunity to refresh the council, to put new people on the council or in, in, the, in the state parliament, although she's no longer the state member. That person, Lord Mayor Clover Moore, has for most of this time gone to an election every two years. So every two years the community have had the opportunity to say, we don't want what you're doing or we don't think you're doing a good enough job. So she's been held very accountable by the community and they have judged that her action is adequate and what they're seeking and therefore they've re-elected her. So that's really important. But yes, it's it's helped because even though we uh, have to act with urgency, this is a long game. You know, the big, the big infrastructure pieces that need to be installed for cities to be able to be sustainable take decades and you need people that stay the course, right? And you need staff that stay the course. And I, I say this to our staff all the time. If you work in a city, you know, the city's got to be your vocation. I'm not saying you have to do it for life, but actually we do need people who are there for the long game because, you, you know, to run a city and to help a city become sustainable, you need to know and love every footpath, every curb, every tree, every park, right? You've got to know it, right? You've got to know every site and what potential it has. Every time a site comes up for renewal, every time the city is touched, the city should be improved as a consequence. And that means knowing everything that's under the ground and doing the hard work of doing that infrastructure planning so that what's under the ground is renewed or what's up in those wires or whatever is renewed to take the city to a more sustainable future. And it takes, you know, cities are made over decades and centuries, not over months and years. So 
yes, having that longevity is really important. But having that consistency of policy is also really important because it means as staff, you come to work every day, you know what you're doing. You know, once you've got an elected representative and council that sets the, the policy, the target, right, that's their job. Then they let us get on with it. So I'm not second guessing every day. Or are we still working on bringing down emissions today? I know exactly what I'm doing every single day of the week. And so do the staff. And we just get on with it. It, it takes a, a special type of person, as you're, as you're, as you're putting across, to actually make, make that progress and stay so dedicated to, to the cause. Well, it's quite an achievement, as you, as you say, to be able to remain in office that long, going to bat every, every few years is quite remarkable. And I think probably sets Sydney further, a lot further ahead than some of the other global kind of cities that it would typically be compared to, I suppose. Um, I have to stop myself from saying competition because it's, it's not a competition, but you know, yeah, it's it. only doesn't, doesn't do any harm. So I don't think no. to kind of give it that competitive edge. If I, if I could just say a few words about the, some of the global networks that we belong to, because um, so we belong to C40 since the beginning of C40, and we also belong to the Resilient Cities Network, which was the, originally the 100 Resilient City Rockefeller 100 Resilient Cities, and we um, and the, the, belonging to those networks is so important because it. It's a collaboration, but the, the edge of competition is actually really helpful. There's nothing like going to those conferences every couple of years. You know, my Lord Mayor is adamant. Okay, what am I reporting? Have I delivered everything I said I would last time? Like, you know, she wants to go and be able to stand up with, with pride and say, last time I was here, I was told you we were going to do this, and we did. And next time, I'm, when I'm back, I'm going to tell you about this. You know, that's, that, that um, collaborative, slightly competitive um, uh, net, those collaborative, slightly competitive networks are fantastic for leaders, right? The, the Resilient Cities one um, is one that we joined later because that started a few years later. And what we've done with that one is really important is because basically when we took that on, we decided that and we agreed that that was going to be something for the whole of metropolitan Sydney. So there are actually 33 local governments in metropolitan Sydney and all 33 participate in Resilient Sydney. And that's the that's the um, the program that we use to help all the other councils and collaborate with all the other councils to help get them and their climate action. So we've taken everything that we've learnt and everything that we've done, and now we're supporting the rest of Metropolitan Sydney to be able to deliver. And we've delivered some really important programs there. So, for example, the replacement of all the LED lights is a project that we started all the streetlights with LED, but it's been rolled out across most of metropolitan Sydney now. Um, we were the first to buy 100% renewable electricity, but now almost all of, you know, we supported the rest of the councils now to be able to go into the same sort of purchase uh, agreements as we went into. So we've got the advantage of being, you know, bigger and um, having more resources. So we'll often go first demonstrate that something can be done, do the trials and those sorts of things, and then we support the councils around us, the rest of the local governments in metropolitan Sydney, to be able to do the same. And, look, that's something else, you know, it's about the fact that sometimes leadership means you have to spend a bit more money. And we've certainly had to sometimes spend more in order to, because we've been the first. So when we got LED lights for the first time, um, you know, we were the first city in Australia to replace our streetlights with LED, the first local government in Australia, right? And so, of course, 
you know, they were going to cost a bit more first time up because it was the first time they were actually being supplied into our country, right? And of course, and this is the thing about, you know, honesty um, in reporting, because we bought them when we bought them, we bought them without smart controls because at the time we couldn't afford the smart controls because that added technology was way too expensive. Now, the rest of Sydney is going to get LED lights with smart controls and, and some people who want to be mischievous will say, oh, the city of Sydney's behind everybody because they've got street lights without smart controls. But that's because we bought them so many years ago, right? And at least we brought down emissions in that time, right? So that's that you know you can see how people can be mischievous with things like that. And of course, when we need when the time comes to upgrade them, they will get smart controls because the price will have come down. So, you know, that's that's the thing that you know, that's one of the reasons the reporting is so important and the communicating is so important because we have to protect our elected representatives. We have to protect our Lord Mayor from that kind of mischief. Right? And that and of course people do do and say those kinds of things. Oh, that other council did better than us. Yes, 10 years later. Right. Look at how much we reduced emissions in those 10 years. We did our bit. So that's, you know, and, and that's the thing about climate action. You know, it's like it's very, it's very complicated, you know, and you've got to understand so much technology and you've got to understand, and, you know, and it, you've got to understand the business case of so many different types of product and, and the business case changes according to your policy settings, your national positions and policies, um, your physical and built environment, you know, your natural and built environment, the resources that you have. It's all place-based and you've got to get down into the detail to deliver. And, and you need very sophisticated leaders to be able to do that and to be honest about that. Definitely. That trend setting is so important. Somebody has to go first. And being yes. part of the networks that you're part of as, as, as a city as well, you know, being able to bring those examples and say, you know what, it, maybe, maybe it will cost you, but it's worth it. We did do a study, though, Luke, because one of the things we said to ourselves was, we know some projects are going to cost more and some projects are going to not cost so much. Why don't we look at our environmental projects as a portfolio of projects instead of individual projects? So each individual project had its own business case and some were going to cost more. So we sort of set ourselves a kind of benchmark. We said, what if we decided that the, the entire portfolio shouldn't cost more than $25 a tonne cost of abatement or have more than a 10-year payback? Because it was st even though some things cost more, the other thing about being a leader, though, was if we didn't find a way to create a business case that was repeatable, then other people wouldn't, right? So we had to keep working on the business case to try to get it down to something that was defendable so that others would repeat it. So, of course, the price was going to come down as people, more people bought streetlights, LED streetlights, right? But we still couldn't go out with a hugely expensive um, purchase because then others would look at us and say, well, you can afford to and we can't. So we still said it had to be within those parameters and we set it at $25 a tonne cost of abatement because at the time that was where the carbon tax was going to be set in Australia before it was abandoned or 10-year payback. And we, we wouldn't take projects up to the council unless they fit that as parameters, right? And 
we succeeded because, of course, then we were able to talk through our procurement processes to suppliers and say things like, look, you're going to, yes, you're taking a risk by being the first to provide LED lights to Australia, but guess what? You're going to be the first to provide LED lights to Australia. And so if you get the job and we're going to do our advocacy, you could make a lot more sales. So work with us here. You know, you've got to put in too. You've got to give something too. Anyway, a few years ago, we did analyse all of the portfolio to see if we'd actually pulled it off and we had. We'd actually, with as a portfolio of projects, we'd actually stayed within those parameters. And, of course, things like, you know, the cost of solar panels, streetlights, I mean, these things have all come down now, right? So now it's a complete no-brainer. But when we started electric vehicles, they haven't come down yet, but they're coming down. But they, you know, so that those, some of those things cost more, some of those things cost less. But now, you know, but it took people like us, cities like Sydney, to go first, spend that little bit extra, but still argue with the suppliers the benefit of going with us. And, and that, I mean, that comes back to your question about longevity. You know, they knew they were dealing with a stable administration. They knew that if we said we were going to deliver on that and then we were going to promote that more broadly, they had a good chance that we would deliver on what we had said we would. Yeah, for sure. Trendsetting Sydney, I think. We might have found a title for the podcast uh, at the very <laughs> least. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I think that's probably um, as much as you'll let me steal from you this morning. Um, but thank you very much indeed for for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and a real eye-opener for me. Uh, and I'm sure it will be for many of our listeners as well. So thank you for taking the time out. We really appreciate it. And um, let's let's stay in touch and do this again because there will be a lot more progress to report in the not too distant future. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in too. We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks, but before then head to smartcitiesworld.net for plenty more on smart and sustainable cities. Take care and we'll catch you next time.